she's back for part two of this most amazing identifying when someone is lying and how to spot and identify human body language. My girl, Vanessa Van Edwards, the charismatic human behavioral scientist herself, is back to blow our minds once again. She's been helping millions of us guys decode the social puzzle of what they say, what they do, what it means when they scratch their head, when they sneeze, when they look to the left or when they look to the right. She literally deciphers it all like a freaking pro. And on this episode, we go deep on how to unlock your hidden advantage with four things that will decode people's true intentions. We also talk about what you can do to read people's minds and unravel the truth in any freaking situation just by the tone of their voice. And if you want a dose of extra impact, go over to Apple subscription and actually check out Women of Extra Impact that you can get right now. Guys, you get zero ads because time is freaking precious. You also get an exclusive curated playlist on essential topics like health, confidence, business, and relationships. You can choose which pillar you want to go down, and then you can dive deep and deep and deeper into that topic. So go over and subscribe and get your first week for free at apple.com slash women of impact. Once again, guys, if you want to get that extra freaking dose of impact this week, go over right now and subscribe to apple.com slash women of impact. Now let's dive into the episode with my girl, Vanessa Van Edwards. So there was a stat that you said that I found so fascinating. It was something like um, telemarketers, if they had a photo of a successful athlete at the top of the script, yeah. they were better off in their job. Yes. And so now as we're talking about this and about yes. getting anxious, would you advise to put a picture of somebody that you so admire and stare at it before you go on a date? And if you don't actually mind breaking that down, the yes. study and everything. Yeah, else. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's exactly exactly as described is that they had telemarketers. They Some people looked at pictures of like pretty meadows <laughs> and some people looked at pictures of an athlete winning a race. Specifically, it was an athlete in pride pose. So as humans across cultures, when we win a race, we want to take up as much space as possible. We tilt our chin up, right? We open up our, mm. our jugular. We usually open up our hands. We usually gesture up towards the sky or we kind of make a big gesture. That's that's a universal gesture of pride. Like when kids win a race, they jump up and down. Mm. It's because we're saying, I'm comfortable in my environment. And I want to be noticed, right? It's like a universal expression of pride. So they had people in a universal expression of pride. What's interesting is they've studied this in a lot of different ways in that, yes, fear is contagious, but pride is contagious too, mm-hmm. right? This is why charismatic people, we're so drawn to them. It's because we want to catch their charisma, right? We're, we're attracted to that person across the room who's very charismatic, who's signaling all the cues that we like. So I, I outline the charisma cues. So openness, fronting, leaning, nodding, uh, mirroring, touch, right? There's all these cues that we're like, hmm, like we like it because we want to catch it. Mm-hmm. It's not because like we like that person. We want it for ourselves. <gasps> so what they found is if they flash this picture or they have this picture of a pride athlete, it's sort of like triggered the winner's response, and the pride response in the telemarketers, which when we catch pride, it makes us better. Like a micro win, a small win, it triggers a chemical response in our body, not to get overcomplicated, but it gives us testosterone, which even if we're a woman, that makes us run faster. It makes us think faster. It increases our endurance. And so if we win or we see someone win, we feel like a winner, which makes us think more like a winner. And so like it creates this like virtuous cycle. And then you have one good call as a telemarketer and you're like, I got this. Mm-hmm. So part of that combating social anxiety, the way that I try to combat it and I teach you is using micro wins. Very small wins that can build up to, oh, I'm breaking out of this anxiety pattern. And they thinking about a role model is a good way to do it. So one, you can have, sure, pictures of people in pride. But more so, I'd rather you have like a success file, which is like things that you have done in the past that make you feel really good. That could be a great email or a picture of you or a great friendship, like I call it a success file. Like it's things that like really made you feel successful. So you're using your own past success to trigger your current success. Mm. Second, you absolutely can use a role model. Like one way, another way they've studied this is they um, asked students who were giving presentations to present like Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is sort of known as being a very good presenter. (laughs) And what they found is the moment they told students to pretend to be Steve Jobs, 
or envisioned Steve Jobs, it changed everything about their cues. They used better hand gestures. They spoke for longer. Their presentations were on average longer and they felt better on stage. So you can also kind of channel Beyonce, <laughs> channel Beyonce, <laughs> channel Steve Jobs, channel whoever it is you think. And, and this, like, that's why I watch a lot of TED Talks is I like I feel very inspired by whoever is invited to be on a TED stage is an expert in their field. And so like, I feel that that's like a great way. So like watch TED talks, watch inspiring speakers, listen to podcasts or shows like this that are like very inspiring that makes you feel like, yeah, like I got this. Like, I think that you and I are in our comfort zone right now. Like I love talking about this stuff. That's contagious. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why we like listening to podcasts is because we were like, Ooh, this person's talking about their, like their juice, their mm-hmm. good stuff. We want to feel that way too. So like we can put all those things around us to help us, you know, feel more motivated. Yeah. I, when I heard you say that stat and stuff, I was like, oh, because I'm always trying to think, how do I use this to my advantage? Right? How do yeah. I implement this into my life so that I can overcome whatever issue I'm facing? Yeah. And so really finding that place where people can. And it didn't really dawn on me in the athlete thing in the pose. That was yes. interesting. Yes. And footballers, soccer players being British, they this is exactly what they do when they score. Right. It's this. Yeah. Always. It's the, it's or the, flips, but it's like, or, it feels like the champions, like, yes. position. Yes. They, they studied congenitally blind athletes, athletes who've been blind since birth. They've never seen anyone win a race. Congenitally blind athletes make the same body <gasps> language poses when they win and when they lose as seeing athletes. When you lose, they do the opposite. They crumple to the ground, they take up as little space as possible. They tilt their chin down. They usually make a pained expression on their face. They often clench their fists. Even though they've never seen that happen before, instinctively their bodies know to do that. That's insane. Mm. I mean, just it- by the way, let's extrapolate that a little further. Pride, big, taking up space, great. But defeat, what did I do? I tilted my head down, I put my an- arms to my side, and I put my fists and hands together. When I check my phone, I also do this. When we check our phone, we accidentally go into the defeat posture. Ooh. So if you're waiting for your day to show up and you're sitting at the table like this, <gasps> you are triggering in your body a feeling of defeat and shame. And your first impression when they walk into the build, when they walk into the restaurant is to see you hunched over your phone. Immediately you're sending a defeated position. That is a that is immediately saying speed reading wise, I feel defeated, I feel ashamed, but by accident by accident. We're doing that. We're checking our phone. We don't even realize it. So if you are waiting for your date, please look around the room, take stock, take up space, put your arm on the chair, look around, chat with the waiter, practice your banter, right? Like I love practicing my banter with servers, right? Because that's a great way to like kind of warm yourself up, look around, take stock, open the menu, right? Like look at it really big. Try to take up space as opposed to checking your phone. You also don't know what you're going to see on your phone and it might trigger that sense of anxiety in your feed, do not do that in your first impression, right? You want your first impression to be as expensive as possible. When they walk in, you can't go like this, right? Or you can, you can say, oh, it's so good to see you if you want to. But I'd rather, oh my gosh, good to see you. Hey, come on over. Or like even that is a huge, very easy broad gesture. And you did that, that's that's showing your wrist. Yeah. Yeah. And also like it's broad, right? I was like, hey, good to see you. Yeah. Dude, that's fascinating. Um, so you mentioned charisma a couple of times now. Yes. Explain to me the difference, though, between uh, someone that is charismatic and someone that is a narcissist, because that is one of the traits yes. that we've heard that narcissists, narcissists have. Okay, so let's talk about why this happens. A narcissist is someone who believes in themselves so much that they don't take other people's feelings into account. They have so much confidence, they feel they're better than everyone else. Narcissism breeds confidence. They also feel so confident and so good that that is also contagious. It's one of the reasons why sometimes we are attracted to narcissists, mm. right? We don't like that they lie to us, but boy, are they really confidently contagious. That is why you'll have people who are like, oh, I just keep dating the same person over and over again. They're so narcissistic. They're so obsessed with themselves. You don't have to be hard on yourself for that. The reason is because you're attracted to their innate sense of confidence because you want to catch it, mm. right? And so narcissism breeds confidence, which can breed charisma because they feel so good about themselves. They're not faking anything, right? They really feel like they're the best catch in the world. So it's actually a sequence of events that happens. And once you recognize that, it's much easier to spot it. You can say, oh, there's a really confident person. I can find my own confidence. 
right? I don't need to get it from someone else. I can buy radical confidence. I can go figure out my cues. I don't need to get it from you. I can get it myself. Mm. That's a much more empowering way to say, I can recognize that's a confident person, but I don't need to get it from them. All right. So let's say you've done that, Mm -hmm. but you still love being around charismatic people. Absolutely. How do you know when it goes from charismatic to narcissism? When you feel like you're being gaslit. So gaslighting, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've talked about this much, but if you feel like you're not like you're questioning yourself all the time or they're making you question your own truth, that is a problem. Mm. That is when narcissism has gone into you questioning your own truth, right? You have to know your own truth. So when you feel like you're being um, gaslit, I don't know, gaslighted, gaslit, um, when you are feeling like you are constantly sacrificing your happiness and your time for someone who's not appreciating it, right? That is when like, okay, gone a step too far. And I also think when a relationship burns you out, you know, like relationships mm. most of the time should give you energy. Now, when someone's having a bad week or a bad day or going through a crisis, no, then you're the giver of energy. But for the most part, a good relationship gives gives both people energy. Both people are like, oh, I'm so excited to see them. I'm so excited to spend time with them. I love talking to them. We're going to make time for each other. That's energy giving. In a narcissistic relationship, it has gone too far when the narcissist is taking, mm. taking, 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 and they're getting energy, but you're not. Or their energy is coming at the sake of your energy. That's when it's too much. A narcissist is fun to be in a relationship with at first because A, you catch their confidence, right? You catch their cues. They make you feel so good. It's fun to be around them. And they're, and that gives you energy, right? Then it's both people get energy. But over time, they begin to take more than they give. That that contagiousness kind of wears off because they're taking from you so much. They're pushing your boundaries. They're putting you down. They're making you doubt your own self-truth. And that's when you know, okay, I am giving way more than I, I'm taking. They're taking more than I'm willing mm. to give. Yeah. Mahomi, I could talk to you forever. You're so freaking amazing. Oh. Where can people, I mean, we've only touched the, the surface, surface yeah. of the different cues that people can use yeah. to identify whether they're in a um, authentic relationship, whether they, you know, the tools that they need to show up to be authentic themselves, but to also identify when someone else may not be. Um, so if they want to dive deeper, where yes. can they go? So if you uh, like listening to audiobooks or reading books, my book cues, I read the audio so you can hear me demo <laughs> all the vocal cues. And then if you really want to dive deep people school our next class is opening soon so you can always enroll it's 12 skills i walk you through them especially for high achieving professionals those are those are our people keep watching guys to learn the psychological tricks to win any argument and negotiate like a freaking pro why on earth women are so afraid to ask for what they want some people think oh women just don't have the skill they don't want to negotiate but actually the truth is that women get a lot of pushback when they do negotiate. And it's the kind of pushback that men don't get when they negotiate. Um, Because, you know, we still have a double standard in our society about what's okay for men to do and what's okay for women to do. And so women often receive this very harsh negative reaction to when they ask for something that they want. And so women have learned that they may need to hold back in order to not get that really negative reaction. And it's really quite unfair because as you know, negotiation is such a powerful tool. And if it's taken away from us, then it does disempower us a bit. Yeah, that's so powerful. And um, I'd love to actually dive deeper on that because if we have the experience where we try it, right, and we get pushback, that almost teaches us something. And so do you think that that's what's happened from younger ages, young girls have tried to negotiate or try to ask for what they want, they get pushback, we kind of accidentally learn the lesson that we get resistance. And so as we get older, we find ourselves in our adulthood now having learned the lesson that we shouldn't negotiate or ask for what we want. Absolutely. And I think you're right. There's two things going on here is that we are experiencing this pushback ourselves as, as girls or young women, um, and we're seeing that, you know, perhaps there is a, concert, a negative consequence to it. But we also see people talking about other women who they find to be too aggressive. And I'm sure you've heard the words that people use. <laughs> I've been called them myself. Um, and, and so we learn, oh, well, you know, she stepped over the line. I, I should maybe not do that. And so we really see from broader society, you know, experiences of people we know, how it's portrayed in the media, in films, on TV. Um, and so we learn that when a woman is perceived as too ambitious or too aggressive, that that's really negative. And our society is really damaging women by doing this to them. 
Oh my God, yes. So let's talk. You even just said uh, that we feel like we're crossing the line. And what's super freaking interesting is I wrote a note saying... Um, we are afraid to cross the line. So now I actually want to talk about what is that line? How on earth did we establish this fake line within ourselves? Um, and then how do we start to break what we perceive as that line to be? Yeah. And, and, and so I think there's a couple things. One is for ourselves. And then what line has society mm-hmm. on us that we don't want there? It's a real barrier for women and, and it's, it's a real problem. Um, and so we have to find a way to combat those um, uh, you know, lines within ourselves or ones that society has put out there for us. So one of the things I think we can start doing is celebrating assertive women, you know, is by saying, yes, you know, I'm glad she negotiated. I'm glad she was strong for herself. And by giving it that air that these are things that we want women to be doing and ought to be doing, I think can help to break down that norm that has been used against us. Oh my God, that's so true. So as you were saying, we should start to celebrate. I was really thinking about how many of us women though, do it to other women. And so now it kind of becomes, if we're able to start with celebrating that one person maybe in our lives, and do you think that that will reinsure it within ourselves? And then it becomes that kind of like effect where now you're affecting other women, other women are affecting other women because that is really difficult. It's a world where growing up for me, strong women were perceived as aggressive. And this was between women and women, not even men and women. It's both really, you know, the research shows that it is other women, but it is also men who are perceiving this. And so if we can stand together as women and celebrate that and say it to our male colleagues, you know, hey, I think this was great that she did this. Why are you having a problem with it? You know, really pushing back on that um, because that is something that that society tolerates for women is that women are allowed to be assertive on behalf of other people. So, you know, if I saw you being, you know, dissed by some man um, or another woman, I could step in really, really assertively and say, I'm standing up for her. And this is exactly what she'd be doing. She should be doing. And, you know, don't have that negative attitude towards her because she's the woman. Why do we feel it's easier to advocate for somebody else, especially another woman, than it is for our own self? Because, you know, kind of going back to, you know, where we really started is women have a problem for advocating for ourselves, for negotiating to get what we want in life, to speak up, to say what that is. But yet we actually do find it easier to do it for other women. Yeah, actually, my research shows that women are much better negotiators for, for other people than they are for themselves. So it's true because we have the confidence that my friend deserves it or my the person I mentor deserves it or my 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 employee deserves it and we also know that we're not going to get pushback for it because again this doesn't cross a, a, a norm line because society has deemed it okay for us to say yes I'm going to support this other person um, and so we don't have that worry about negative pushback because it's really okay for us to advocate for others. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. 
oh God, that's so true. And at the same time, I feel like not advocating for ourselves and worrying about the fact that we may seem um, uh, like too aggressive or too arrogant. Um, I feel like it's a self, it's a form of self-sabotage because then we don't go actually after what we want and even see if it's possible. Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to know. It, is it self-sabotage if you hold back purposely because you know someone's going to nail you if, you if you cross the line? You know, it might be self-preservation that you're looking at it and saying, okay, like weighing the costs and benefits. Like I'm an economist. Okay. So I have to do that weigh costs and benefits. Um, And certainly there's a benefit to negotiating as you well know. Um, And if the cost is too high, we might actually rationally and, and, and correctly say, maybe I'll hold back here. And so Um, I don't want to paint too dismal of a message, though, because there are ways that you can negotiate really effectively that doesn't that doesn't produce that backlash. And that's really what I've been trying to work on in my career is how women can do that. Oh my God. Thank you for pushing back on that, by the way. That was so powerful because you're 100% right. And so now let's actually talk about how we actually begin then to start negotiating. So let's say people are listening right now and they're not advocating for themselves. They're not speaking up, whether it's in a relationship or business or even a dynamic with family. There's so many different variables or situations that we can be in where we don't speak up for ourselves. We don't negotiate to actually get what we want. So what is that very first step if someone doesn't even have the confidence in thinking about that they have the right to speak up in the first place? Well, the first part, I think, is to to get your mind right in terms of how you go and think about negotiation. If you think about negotiation as a conflict, as a battle, as a war, as like threats and like, you know, aggressive behavior is what will work, then you're going to be in big trouble because Those are techniques that don't work well for men or women. I mean, men have a little more leeway to engage in them without the backlash, but there are definitely a lot of pushback if women use those techniques. So that's not the way to think about negotiation anyway. And fortunately, like decades of negotiation research says the best way to think about a negotiation is a cooperative problem-solving activity. When you frame it that way, it isn't so scary, it isn't so threatening. And it's really more effective as a way to solve a problem because a negotiation isn't, I make an ask or a demand and then you say something, yes or no, right? Mm -hmm. It's a dialogue, right? It's a back and forth. How is this going to work? How can we work it out so it's okay for both of us? You know, especially if you're thinking about a relationship, a long-term relationship or a long-term business relationship, you want to keep that relationship central. And so the first thing is to really have that frame of mind to think about it as a dialogue, as a discussion, as something that I'm going to advocate for myself. But I also want to think about how you're seeing this and how I'm going to make it work for you as well. Okay. I love this. And do you mind actually just like uh, telling the audience about the test that you did with the ask versus the negotiation? So telling women that they can either ask for something or negotiate and how we responded, because this actually just really does highlight what you just said on how words matter. Exactly. Exactly. And so um, the, the word negotiate has this very kind of masculine co- connotation. It seems competitive and threatening. And so women will back away from negotiation. But if you say ask, because ask is, well, it's going to be a, a dialogue. We're going to have, a, I'm going to ask, you're going to say something. We're going to discuss it. Um, women are more willing to engage in that ask than in the negotiation um, in, our, in our research. And so again, it's that, it's the, how I'm framing this in my head is going to really affect my success going forward and, and, you know, my willingness to engage in the process at all. Oh my God. I love that because I'm all about like, you may feel nervous. You may feel anxious. You may feel guilty even about thinking that like, Oh, can I negotiate this or not? And I'm always trying to get like, what is that first thing that we can do in order to really step into it? So I love the fact of just changing the word negotiate to ask. That's amazing. Um, And then what is that next step that we can start to do into assess? Because you even said risk and reward. Like, what is that first thing that we need to do in order to look at the risk and reward to know if this is something that we feel comfortable um, negotiating? Yeah, one of the things we did in our research is we had women come into a negotiation where they actually did a negotiation in their lab, in our lab. 
Um, and we either had them come in and prepare for the negotiation and just, you know, negotiate as they would, or we told them, hey, you know, research shows that women negotiate better for other people than themselves. And so think of this negotiation as you're planning it, as if you were going to do it for somebody else, mm-hmm. right? Of course, mm-hmm. you're going to do it for yourself, but like in the planning, like use that frame of mind. And that helped women to really set higher targets and do better in the negotiation than when they just thought of it from the outset for themselves. So again, it's a it's a getting your mind right before you even enter enter the negotiation. And that will help you to carry it forward and not concede too quickly. Oh, I love that. How do you then start to assess then um, what is the right strategy in the negotiation? Because I assume there's many different types of ways that you can enter a room, bring up the discussion. Um, Is there a right or wrong strategy? And if so, what is that first step? Yeah, um, again, I'm actually going to take a step back because like the most important part of negotiation is what you do before you walk into the room. Oh, okay. So we talked about the language. We talked about sort of getting your, your mindset. And then the second part is to be really prepared. Okay. To really have, so, cause that will give you some confidence, your expertise um, <laughs> uh, to go out and, and ask for what you want. And so what do I mean by research? Well, it just, it depends. Like if you're going to buy a car, of course you would go and scour websites about what, cars cost, what other people paid for that car. That's your research, right? Uh, if you were going to go negotiate for a salary, you would do the same kinds of things. You know, what do people in this job like mine, what are they getting paid to calibrate what your what your ask should be? So that research is a really important part of the process so that you feel comfortable knowing that you haven't undersold yourself, but you also haven't mm-hmm. asked for an amount that was ridiculous, Right. So I could go in and ask my boss for a million dollars, probably what I should be paid, um, but he probably would not think that was very well calibrated as a university professor. So um, that would not serve me well in the negotiation to start with a target like that. And so I have to be really calibrated to know what's the market for people like me. That's amazing. Um, and then what do you think about your why? How much do you lean into um, aligning ourselves with our why before we go in? Yeah, the why is really important, uh, Lisa, because suppose that I ask for a particular thing and the person I'm asking actually can't give that to me, but something else would be just as good. Mm-hmm. If I don't give the why I'm interested in, we can't explore those other options. It's either a yes or a no. So if I'm working at a particular company and I say, you know, I really want to move to the California office and the California office is just not available. But the reason maybe I want to go to California, leave Pittsburgh, is that maybe I want to see the ocean. And if I started with that, maybe we could brainstorm that there are other offices, maybe the Miami offices, you know, has a has an opening or, or some place that I could move. And so the why is actually really important to solve problems in a negotiation. I love that. Um, Do you mind sharing the stat, which honestly, like knocked me for six girl. I was like, holy smokes, the world needs to hear this stat about if you don't ask or negotiate your original salary, your base original salary, what that can end up being um, at the end of your career. It like blew me away. Yeah. And it depends on what level you're starting at, but it can be as much as one and a half million dollars that you're losing over the course of your career. And that's because you're starting with your lower salary, but then most places are giving percent raises. You know, you get 2%, you get 3%, you get 5%, whatever it is. Inflation, it might be more. Well, that percent is a lower raise because you're if your salary is lower because you didn't negotiate, every raise you get for every year you work is lower. And that adds up over time. And if you'd saved all that money that you may, may, would have made from doing that negotiation, you could have a huge uh, uh, amount of money at the end of your career. Now, women that are a little older, like myself, don't despair. It's not too late. <laughs> it isn't, you have it's at the beginning of your career. You know, um, anytime during your career, you can find an opportunity to recalibrate and uh, reassess and renegotiate. 
Thank you for giving the, the, the shining light to everybody listening. Um, the reason why I thought it was really important, though, to talk about that is because it really does highlight it's not just you negotiating right now and what you're going to get out of that speaking up, saying what you want right now. It does actually become a long tail thing of how that you, by you holding back, by you not saying what you think, by you not speaking up, by you not negotiating, um, actually has that massive knock-on effect that in 20, 30 years, you realize, oh, that one time that I didn't overhear actually has this impact. And so the data point is so interesting to me because now I start to think about what that looks like in a relationship where you're, you know, in your first year of your relationship and you let things go, you're kind of sacrificing and you don't speak up. And what that looks like, by you not speaking up or negotiating what you want or what that relationship should look like, what that can end up looking like in 10 years. Exactly. And those things can add up because you give a little this time. And so your partner expects that that's the way you're going to be in the future. And so um, you're kind of you can be locked into that to that pattern. So it's very important in a relationship or any kind of relationship, a business relationship, a romantic relationship, a partnership in, um, uh, you know, with a with an employer to have that negotiation and set a precedent for I'm a person that can have a dialogue about this. We can discuss it. We can understand both of our needs. We can figure out a solution that works for us both. That is an asset. I mean, think about mm-hmm. engaging in that as an asset that you're re- that will build, you know, bear fruit as the relationship grows, because you'll have that to be able to come back to. This is something where we can discuss when we see things differently. We can reach a res- resolution and we can move on. I love that so much. Um, Okay, I really, really want to talk about the no club um, and how on earth as women we can get better at saying no. And so the no club, your book that you wrote is fantastic and you really do freaking lay out, girl, like all these very tactical ways of actually saying no. Um, And so I really want to start with how do you know what you should be saying yes or no to in the first place? Because as women, I can actually just speak for myself. The inclination is to always say yes, because I want to be liked. I want to be accepted. I want the pats on the back. I want the validation. And so over my 42 years of being on this earth, I've learned that saying yes gets me a certain feeling from other people and saying no gets me another certain feeling where people don't um, welcome you as warmly. So I've learned to try and say yes as much as possible, like a lot of women do. So now how do we actually know? I'm not saying that we should say no to everything, right? But how do we start to know and assess what is a yes and what is a no in our lives? Yeah, it, it's such a it's such a great point, you know, the feeling that a yes brings versus a no because of what someone is expecting. We expect women to say yes when we ask for their help, ask for them to do something for us. We expect a yes. And so a no feels bad because we know that that's not what someone is expecting. You know, to kind of double down on that, though, the other thing that happens is that women are asked to do things more than men Mm -hmm. Uh, because we know they're going to say yes. So why bother asking a man who may say no? If I know that Lisa is going to say yes, I'll go ahead and ask her. Not only are we going to say more, no, uh, no more, but we're going to get asked more. And, And so you're exactly right that the first thing to do is to decide what it is you want. And you know, the no club, as you said, in our new book kind of came about because we were five professional women who realized that our careers were completely bogged down in work that didn't matter, that we were successful, but we were overloaded with work that really wasn't part of our jobs. Mm-hmm. And so if you can imagine um, what this kind of work is, it's, you know, planning a party, it's um, helping out on recruiting, maybe even if you're not in HR. It's solving a conflict between coworkers that's happening. It's taking on that client that's a real pain in the ass, but that someone has to do it, but is not going to be very profitable, right? That kind of work, we call it actually non-promotable work because it is work that the organization needs to have happen, right? We need people to be hired. We need conflicts to be resolved. We need that low revenue client to be Uh, fulfilled, but it doesn't help the person that does them. So we kind of came to this realization as five friends that we were drowning in this work. We actually started thinking about it as crappy work, but then we found (laughs) (laughs) it. We started calling it non-promotable work and we realized it was dragging us down. And the, the problem with it is 
it was derailing the work that was important to our careers. Mm. So we just didn't have time to do that work. And so we were, we were dealing with all this stuff that our employers were really happy we were doing, but we were never going to see a raise for it. We were never going to be, you know, singled out like great job, Linda, you know? Mm. Um, and so we decided to form a club called the no club because we wanted to take back control of our time. And so we first, you know, thought about how to say no, uh, which is the, which is kind of like our first reaction. And two of us in the club are negotiation professors. So, you know, we, we kind of like, <laughs> had to do this. And so we talked about a lot of strategies for, for saying no. Um, but the first thing is really to decide what you want to do. And if you decide you want to say no, then you have to do it in, in the right way. All right. So how do you, that was amazing. I freaking love that. Um, how do you actually then start to decide on whether it's something that becomes an instinct where this fear comes up? I'm not going to be liked. Uh, you know, are people going to reject me if I say no? Um, versus like, oh no, I actually should be saying no to this because of this reason. How do we pass those apart? Yeah. You know, for us, our, our no club, the group of the five of us, we had each other's backs. And so we would have emergency emails saying, hey, I just got asked to do this. What do you guys think? And everyone would write back saying, no, this is not. <laughs> like, they kind of had clearer eyes mm. in our perspective than, than we did ourselves because we were colored by that guilt and the expectation. Mm -hmm. And our friends could look at it and say, this is not how you should be spending your time. That's crazy. And so it really gave each of us the feeling that, okay, you know, we, 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 we can, we can, we can push back. Um, we developed other rules for ourselves. Like we call it the 24 hour rule. So we could say no to something immediately, but if we wanted to say yes, we had to wait 24 hours. Uh -huh. And so that gave us a time to reflect on it because if we do it in the moment, you know, we can be overwhelmed by the emotions that we feel the strong expectations to say yes. And so we can kind of carefully more rationally reflect, like, is this something I ought to be doing? Is this something that's going to be good for me? Am I the right person to do this? Who else could do it? And so it gave us an ability um, to make better decisions about whether to say yes or no, and not just have a reflexive yes. I love that 24 hour rule. I'm so like tactical like that because I sometimes can't get out of my own way. Like my emotions will come up and I'll feel the pressure and I'll just blurt out a yes. And then I'll spend the next two days beating myself up over the fact that I've just said yes. And so kind of having a strategy, I'm very tactical. Now I just go, okay, anytime Lisa, someone asks you something, just pause and say, can I get back to you tomorrow? Right? Like having those rules immediately just takes my emotions out of it and then lets me process it without the the added pressure exactly and we always make the mistake of thinking that we're not going to be busy in the future i don't know if you, <laughs> yes. so you look at your calendar now and you're like oh my calendar is a disaster oh but this is for three months in the future oh my calendar is so open of course i can do that but what you know very well lisa is that your calendar in three months is going to look exactly like it does today but we make that mistake every time and we just don't learn from it and so we have to think about it like if this ask was for today, would I feel just as excited about doing it? Mm. And the answer is probably no. Or because it's in the future, that dread, we almost like, oh, I should be fine. But then as the time approaches, the real emotion really does start to come up. And you're like, oh, I've been dreading this. I just thought that the dread would go away with time, but it doesn't. No. And if you're, if you're constantly feeling regret for what you agreed to do, this is probably a good signal that you have this problem that you are saying yes to frequently. All right. So um, I actually want to talk about how we say no now, because I, I love how you talk about like, how do you actually give an effective no? Because <laughs> one thing you said is like, don't hedge your bets with your no. How many of us do that? Oh, yeah. You say something like, I'm busy right now. And then the person says, well, when could you do it? And then you're stuck. Like, you can't say I'm busy for the rest of my life. Like, I'm not going to be free. So you have to be pretty clear that actually no means no. Now, that doesn't mean just saying no and walking away or just, you know, curtly in an email. You have to say no the right way. But you do have to make clear that it is a no and that there's no wiggle room. Otherwise, you might be trapped. So... How do you do that? How do you, how do you say no in a, in, a, in a good way? You have to remember that when someone asks you to do something, 
they're just trying to solve their problem, right? Um, say they want you to serve on a, a committee or they want you to speak in an event that you'd rather not speak at. They're looking for someone. They're looking to s- some help. And so it doesn't you have to be you who gives that to them. So you could help problem solve with the person and say, you know, I can't do this, but I'll, I'll help you think about who else would be great. And so that that no is a very positive no, because you're showing, look, I understand you have a situation here. I'm willing to help. This is not something I can do, but let me, I can talk to you about it and suggest some people who I think would be good, especially people who this would be a great opportunity for, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to throw other women under the bus, right? <laughs> um, but uh, someone who this might be really something that's promotable or something that they would be excited about to try to recommend that person. And that can help to really soften the blow of saying no. That's so amazing. Um, I also heard you say that you also should um, embody like the physicalities of someone that would say no. Right. You could, if you're in a meeting, you know, you, everyone has been in this situation where the boss needs something to be done. You're all in a meeting. That person is talking about it and they're asking for a volunteer. And if you're looking at your boss, they're going to make eye contact with you and think that that's a a tacit agreement. And so, you know, you need to pull out your phone, like start packing up your stuff, you know, uh, mimic the the body language, you know, sit on your hands is is what what you have to do. Because (laughs) how often is it like, oh, I'll do it. But no, you sit on your hands wait for someone else to, uh, to volunteer. And so you don't want to give that, that, um, that nonverbal, uh, impression that you are really willing to say yes, because if you say rest, yes, right away, people might think your show, she's happy to do this. This is probably good for her when, in a sense, Mm. when it, when it may not be. Yeah. Um, I love all that. I'd love to start talking about the different traits that we have as um, females and males and how those traits um, either can help us or hinder us when we're doing, uh, when we're in a negotiation or speaking up and saying what we really want. Um, Can you break down what are the traits that we can use as our superpowers? Um, And, you know, we spoke a little earlier about aggression um, and how that is perceived as more of a, um, like, it's almost okay for guys to show aggression in a negotiation. But if women do, it's, um, it's kind of, they end up being something that leads to, I feel, being dismissed. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, we did this in our research. We, we taped professional actors doing a negotiation where they portrayed different, stra- different strategies, you know. And we had a male and a female actors. We paired them so that, you know, they were as similar as possible. And we had, like, the man do the assertive negotiation, the woman do it. A man do a cooperative negotiation, the woman do the cooperative negotiation. We filmed them and we showed them to people and asked them what they thought. Would they like to work with this person? Would they like to hire them? What did they think of them? And they pretty much liked the man, no matter what he did. It was fine. He seemed he seemed ambitious and assertive, and those were all good things, and we liked him. And we liked the women that were in the co- more cooperative mode, but we thought that, that she was too demanding. We did not want to work with her. It was not a team player in the really assertive mode. So this, again, shows clear evidence of this double standard that we have. These things are okay for men to do, and these things are not okay for women to do. And, you know, this is not research that we did 30 years ago. You know, this is recent Mm -hmm. research, and this was men, both men and women viewing the videotapes. So women didn't like the assertive women, and men didn't like the assertive women. So, um, So that really says something to you in terms of what strategy is going to be effective. And fortunately, the research shows that that assertive kind of competitive strategy is actually not a very effective one for anybody, that it's the cooperative strategy that is really beneficial. And so like we were talking about earlier, going in with a a dialogue, a discussion mindset, you know, asking questions of the other person, you know, what are the issues for you? Like, how is this going to work for you? Tell me, tell me about your concerns. You know, if they have a negative reaction to what you're, you're saying, you can ask about that. Tell me what you're worried about. Let's see if we can work on a solution together. You know, it's like you have to envision you sitting side by side trying to solve a problem rather than across a table. Mm. And those kinds of strategies, when you think dialogue, discussion, cooperation, problem solving, questions, um, you know, concern for the other side. Those are all things that you want to keep in mind as you 
you know, in your language for, for when you're asking for what you want. And that's no matter what it is. I love that. One of the things you mentioned earlier is how women, we are judged more harshly, whether we like it or not. And so I'm all, I've got like these two ways of thinking about situations like that. One is like, well, that doesn't seem fair, right? And then the other one is like, well, even though it's not fair, if it is fact, how do I use that in order to navigate my negotiations, me speaking up, me getting what I want, just knowing, okay, it may not, I may not like the fact that my husband can be more aggressive in a meeting and get what he wants. And then I'm perceived as a bitch. Um, I don't like that, but it is true. So now that I know it is true, how do I show up in a meeting and still negotiate, but not be fake and hold back on the um, confidence that maybe I have in that meeting? Yeah, and, and you're right. It com- is completely unfair. It completely sucks. It is, it, is, it is not okay, in my view, and it sounds like yours too, for society to have this double standard. And it's something that we have to work on. You know, I have a program with the Girl Scouts, and we have a badge for negotiation now that we develop for them because we want to develop it as being this is cool. This is something girls ought to be doing. This is this is powerful. We want to see this, uh, and so I'm really actively trying to make that change happen, which is why I'm going on and on about it by saying, you know, we really have to stop doing this. But you're right. I'm also a pragmatist, and I have to look at it and say, okay, you know. It is what it is. We're trying to change it. But until we do, we have to navigate around it. And I, I kind of think about it like um, being on a bit of a tightrope. You know, you, you have to be assertive in a negotiation to get what you want, but not too assertive to invoke the backlash. And, and that's really the sort of needle you have to thread here um, as a woman um, and, and, and really use the right language in order to be able to thread that needle effectively. And so, you know, everyone should take a negotiation class. If you, if you don't have access to one in person, take one online, read, there's so many great negotiation books out there. And that will really help you be comfortable with this cooperative approach, you know, seeing it as a dialogue. I love that. So how do you know what are things that right now people, if, as they're listening, going, okay, well, I want to walk the tightrope. I totally hear what you're saying. Like I'm in, I really want to do this, but I actually don't know what that fine line looks like. What is that line of, okay, these are the words that we recommend you use that will get with you what you like or what you want. And then these are the words that actually will deter you and do the opposite of what you're looking for. Yeah. And this is where I think having practice really helps. You know, why mm-hmm. I said to take a negotiation class is what you do in a negotiation class is you negotiate with other people in the class and you have, you know, you have these negotiations, you, you figure out what's comfortable for you. You can talk to the person afterwards and said, how did that seem? Like what was good about what I did? What was not good about it? You get feedback from the other side. And so that gives you the opportunity to practice. So if you can't take a class, there's, if there's someone you can practice with, Maybe you have a mentor or someone who is a peer that you can do a kind of a mock negotiation with and get some feedback on, you know, and then you'll learn what your effective voice is um, through that process. Um, And again, like I said, you don't want to go into the negotiation saying, here's the one thing I want, and that's the only way it's going to work. Whereas it might work a little bit differently. Once you have a discussion, you understand what the, the other side can't do that. That's not the end of the story. Okay, well, is there a middle? Mm. There's some other option that could work well for both of us. Literally, as you were talking, the next thing I was going to ask you is what do you do about non-negotiable? So let's say it, but it's the flip. So let's say you have a non-negotiable. Someone comes to you and wants to negotiate with you. Um, do you actually suggest, okay, yes, in the mo- there are certain moments where you do want non-negotiables and you just say to someone that's not possible. Like how do we start to pass through? This was a boundary I used to have. Someone's coming in. They're trying to negotiate my boundary. Um, how do you work through that? Well, I don't want to recommend that you go back on your boundaries because, you know, we, when we have boundaries, we have them for a good reason. And so, um, you know, if someone uh, comes to me and has something, you know, asks for something I, I cannot do, I will be honest about that and say, you know, here's, here's what, you know, I, I really can't do that. Can I understand here? Tell me about what you're really trying to accomplish here. Why is it you want this? Mm. And that's where this sort of questioning, like, 
what is it they're trying to achieve? Maybe I can figure out how to help them without giving it, giving, you know, giving up my boundary. There might be some other option that they, the person hadn't considered that I hadn't considered. But if we have that discussion, if both sides are saying, look, I, I can't do this, but tell me what it is you're really trying to achieve here. You know, tell me why this, this particular thing is, is important to you. That might help us to solve the problem. Hmm. So, so whatever side we're on in the negotiation, we can use, you know, a question as a strategy, you know, you might think a question is a strategy. <laughs> and yeah, it's actually a really effective negotiation strategy helps me understand what it is you want. And getting a no is not, is not the end of the world. Like Lisa, suppose every time you negotiated, someone said yes to you automatically. What would you, what would you think? Um, God, what would I think that I would, I would start to be worried, I think. I don't know why. <laughs> no, no. I, you should be worried because what it would say to you is that you haven't pushed hard enough, right? If mm. it was easy always to give you what you want, that means you're not asking for enough, right? Mm-hmm. Really, okay. So a no is actually a sign that, okay, I found the boundary. That's okay. You know, I don't have to push the boundary, but all right, that's the boundary. But what can you do? You know, if you can't do this, like, tell me how close you can come. You know, I always say this when you're negotiating a salary, if you ask for a certain number, say 8%, right, an 8% increase, and the person says no, you don't just walk away. You say, okay, I understand eight is difficult for you. Can you tell me how close you could come to that number? Could you do six instead, right? And so a no is not actually the end. It's an opportunity to discuss more and find a common ground. Mm. And do we, do you think that we've just been trained so much to believe that a no is a rejection and it's hard to put yourself out there and leave yourself vulnerable? Yeah. And one of the exercises I do in my negotiation class is I have them do a negotiation every week, like out in the real world, like this week, you have to go do this this week after this. And one of the assignments is they have to get a no. They have to go and they have to come back that they got rejected. Okay. And, you know, they think this is just torture. <laughs> it it sounds opportunity. like torture. <laughs> it's not, it's not. It gives us the opportunity to just say, Hey, did you survive that interaction? Everybody's like, yes, I survived. That's okay. But, you know, are you, you're still okay. No, that was a no, but you still lived. It's not the end of the world. And so you kind of have to get used to a no is part of life. People will say no to you. You can't, you can't fear it. I say no to people a lot. Uh, I hope they don't, I hope, I hope they don't fear it. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Okay. Well, so now if you're negotiating with somebody in your life, that is, um, let's say a partner, someone really close to you, a best friend or something, um, I can only imagine is way more emotional than you negotiating with your boss. Like if your boss is rude or, um, you know, a contractor or a car dealer or, you know, dealership or whatever, if they're rude, you can kind of dismiss them and be like, well, that that's an asshole, right? And then you can kind of walk off and, and turn away. But when it's someone in your life where this negotiation could really make a big deal out of your the relationship you have with them, is there any types of things that you would suggest you do differently if it's a partner, a spouse, or someone like that? Well, you know, something that's a life partner, like a spouse or employer, employee, all of those, you want to have a positive relationship. But this is where negotiation is actually easier rather than hard. Because if you have a relationship with someone, it means that you have some trust with each other. And so you can have a dialogue, you know, and again, it's not, I'm going to demand and threaten my friend, you know, that's not (laughs) any kind of negotiation. I don't care what it is. Really? Even if it was a job, you wouldn't say, if you don't give me a pay raise, I'm leaving. You, You would suggest to never do that? Um, I think that's only as a last resort when all okay. other things have failed, because what can happen is that the, the boss can say, well, let me help you pack. And so um, you, it has to be you have to be at your wits end in order to use a threat like that, because do you like to be threatened? Oh, Jesus, no. <laughs> so that that isn't going to prompt the reaction that you want, right? Mm. When we think about it, if someone did that to me, how would I feel? I wouldn't feel good about that. You know, I imagine that there are some international, uh, you know, conflicts that an approach like that is at sometimes necessary, right? Um, but in any relationship, 
um, that you have, you would never want to threaten somebody. Um, it, it's, 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 it's not going to help the relationship and it's not going to get you what you want. And so again, I said negotiation in a, in a, in a relationship is easier because you have some trust because you know, you can just sit down and talk mm. hey, can we talk about this. Not I'd like to negotiate about our arrangement. No. Can we talk about, you know, where we're going to have Thanksgiving this year? You know, if, if you're talking to your mother-in-law, yes. um, you know, I'm not, I'd like to negotiate about Thanksgiving. And if, if, if we don't have it at my house, I'm not coming to yours. Like, well, you would never say that. Right. Mm-hmm. So you would say, Hey, let's talk about this. You know, here's why it's, it's going to be hard for us to travel this year. Can we do it at our house this year? And, and we'll, we'll come to your house next year, you know, to sit down and solve that problem together. We'll we'll do the the December holidays, you know, at your house. So again, it's a dialogue. It's a discussion. It's hearing what they think and incorporating that into what you do. Yeah. I also think that if you're, um, if you're saying consequences, it, it not only doesn't feel good, but it kind of does shows that show that person's character that they're going to uh, pull out that card, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, that's typically, you know, only, as I said, as a last resort, that if you don't actually get what you want, you're going to end the relationship and walk away. That's the time to use it. And certainly not before. And do you think it's important to um, then process that before you go into that negotiation? Because I don't know about you, but I have, when I was a teen, when I was dating this guy, um, in the middle of the argument, you know, you picture where the conversation is going to go. You think you know where it's going to go. And then they surprise you. And then all of a sudden, the conversation is gone completely derailed. And because of all the emotions, you throw out a consequence. Well, if you don't do this, then we may as well break up. Um, obviously, that's a younger mentality that I had. But I, how do you avoid that um, in any situation where you don't allow your emotions to just get away with you and you say something that you're then going to regret? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll say two things about that. One is the emotions that you have, emotions can be helpful in a negotiation, like being positive, being interested, open. Those are all things that are very good. But a negative emotion that catches you by surprise, like you said, the conversation goes badly. You're all of a sudden really upset and you say something you regret because you weren't expecting that emotion. That can be really, really dangerous. So I'd say there are two uh, two solutions. One is have a role play ahead of time. So I used to have negotiations with a person that was very, very difficult. And I had a really good friend who knew this person. And so I knew that when I went into that negotiation, I was going to lose my cool. And so she would play that person and she would, you know, attack me, you know, say nasty things. And, you know, and then when it, if it happened in the real negotiation, I would be more prepared for what I was going to do. So I always took her out for a drink or a nice meal after that because it's not very fun, but it was really useful for me to be really ready for what's going to happen. So that's one thing you can do. But if you're in the negotiation or you're in the discussion, it starts to go badly. You feel like you're losing it. Just step back. It's really hard to do. And just say, you know what? I think both of us need to just take a, take a break I could use it. I could use a beer. I could let's go get a coffee. I need to think about this a little bit more and extricate yourself from the situation so that you can then sort of think about, okay, what do I really want to do now? I'm a little calmer. You know, how do I want to approach this? You don't think well when you're upset, when you're angry. And so to have a little emotional distance from it. And so at any time in a negotiation, you can always step away and say, you know, why don't we finish this discussion tomorrow or let's take a break. I sure could use one. Everything you're saying is so freaking powerful. Um, and I've also heard you talk about, um, understanding your own triggers when it comes to negotiations, because so many of us can be triggered in the middle of that and knowing what those are are going to be imperative. Do you mind digging a little deeper on that? Yeah. Um, and so definitely to know what are your hot buttons, <laughs> you know, someone is going to say to you, that's going to, that's going to, um, tick you off, get you upset. Um, and so kind of knowing that and knowing responses to that, you know, either in your head or verbally, um, you know, what, what you can do to, to counter that, because you're right. We all have the things that really push our buttons. And when we're feeling that that's happening, 
that should be a sign for us that we need to step away for a minute and reassess Mm. really being, you know, brutally honest with yourself about what are the things that could go wrong here that are going to lead this to a bad outcome. And how can I now think about either responses in the moment, if that happens or ways to extricate myself from the situation so that I can think about it. I love that you said assess as well, because that to me would be a very important part of practicing, right? So how would you like do a negotiation and then review it and give yourself critical feedback in order to implement next time? It's such a great question because, you know, we have a tendency to take credit for our successes (laughs) and blame the other person for our failures. And so, you know, we don't learn that way. You know, we're not going to like, we learn the most as you, as you well know, we learn the most from our failures. Like what went wrong? Okay. What could I have done differently? Oh yeah. When I said that, yeah, that really ticked that person off and that wasn't good. Okay. I have to remember that I do that. And so to really then debrief yourself, Um, you know, what could I have done better? Um, what worked well, what didn't, what did I fail to do before I walked in the room? (laughs) What piece of data did I miss? How did, how was I thinking about this incorrectly? What preparation should I have done that I would have been more prepared? Um, because it's really often that preparation that's the culprit rather than something that I said in the negotiation. It's something that I wasn't ready for. It's Mm. something I hadn't thought about. Um, and so really to also, think about what I could have done before I walked into that, before I said a word, um, what else I could have done that would have helped. 